The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundational event of Christianity. So if the resurrection did not happen, then no one has a reason to be a Christian. And since the resurrection is so important, it is crucial for all Christians to be aware that there is an abundance of evidence showing that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead as he and his disciples claimed he did. In this episode, I'm going to present and discuss one major argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ called the modern trilemma argument. I will present the argument and then discuss how it answers objections to the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. So I hope you'll stick around and find out reasons why we think the apostles were telling the truth and that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, we are finally going to cover in depth in one lecture uh, just one argument for Jesus' resurrection. In the last episode, we talked about and surveyed three different arguments for Jesus' resurrection. And like I said in the last episode, in this episode, I am going to cover in depth uh, one argument for Jesus' resurrection called the modern trilemma argument. Uh, also known as uh, the uh, maximal data approach, okay? So uh, I'm excited for this episode. It's been a long time coming, and uh, here we are. So um, as always, I present a Bible passage at the beginning of all these episodes. So uh, this Bible passage... Um, isn't as pertinent to the resurrection, but it's it's uh, I've got it listed for this lecture and the next lecture because in the next lecture we are going to talk about the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. So that's mainly why this uh, Bible passage is uh, uh, is here for this episode and the next one. I just, in fact, I'm not even going to go in depth on this one this time because we have so much to cover in this episode. So I, I usually, when I first present a Bible passage, I talk about it a lot more, um, but I'll just have you, um, if you are interested in me talking about this passage more in depth, just know that I'll talk about it more in the episode on inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture in the very next episode. Uh, but, but here it is. It's Mark 7, verse 13. It says, You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. This is uh, a verse, obviously, from the Gospel of Mark. And in the context of it, it's where some of the Pharisees and scribes were getting on to Jesus because his disciples were eating with unwashed hands. Uh, Jesus replies to them and basically says they're hypocrites. Um, again, I don't need to go too much into this passage. Just maybe something to be thinking about as we talk about the Jesus resurrection. I was going to use this passage, and in the next uh, episode, in the next lecture, we're going to be talking about um, evidence for uh, the inspiration uh, and inerrancy of Scripture. This will be one of the verses we'll use. Uh, just notice that in this passage, Jesus is talking about, the, it's not only the Old Testament law, it's more than that uh, from the context of this passage, but he's he's calling the Old Testament the Word of God. 
And that's some of the reasons why we think that uh, that the Bible is the Word of God, because Jesus said it was. And, uh, and in this episode, we're looking at evidence showing why we think Jesus is God, right? Because he rose from the dead and he said he was God. But um, but anyways, we'll we'll see more from uh, from that passage in the next episode. Uh, for now, I just wanted to, to say that really quickly. But here's our questions for reflection that we always do at the beginning of these and at the end. So here's some questions for reflection that you can be thinking about as we go through the material. And, you know, you can uh, comment on these in the comment section if you're watching this in a video. Or you can go to my academic website and go to the con- uh, contact portion of my academic website, bcalkelts.com, and uh, send me some feedback if you'd like. Uh, or, you know, obviously it's just something you can be thinking about. So our first uh, question for reflection for this episode is, can you think of objections that people might make against this trilemma argument? We will be covering a lot of objections, but maybe you could be thinking of more. And if you have some that you have questions about, you can send me a, a, a comment. Uh, the second question for reflection is, how would you answer these objections? And the third question is, do you think a group of liars could be ingenious enough to create four gospel accounts that were up to 30 years apart from each other that contained all the undesigned coincidences? You should know what an undesigned coincidence is by now from the last episode, but if you don't, just hang in there, and we're, that's what we're going to be talking about a lot more in this episode, okay? So, yeah, like we've already talked about in, in previous episodes, um, I wanted to spend this entire lecture on just this one trilemma argument for Jesus' resurrection. In the last episode, I talked about three major arguments for Jesus' resurrection. It was the... Uh, Lord Liar Lunatic argument, the minimal facts approach, and uh, the modern trilemma argument, also known as the maximal data approach. And I gave reasons for why this is my favorite argument for Jesus' resurrection at the moment in that last episode. So if you're interested in that, you can go back and, and listen to that if you haven't already. Uh, but but yes, this is our argument that I wanted to show you uh, and spend a whole hour or so on in, in one whole lecture talking about everything. Um, and, you know, honestly, there's gonna, there's actually a lot more to this. You know, if you are new to this series, uh, it really is a series for beginners. And almost every single thing that I talk about, it goes way deeper than what I'm presenting. Uh, that's why, you know, I, I recommend uh, books for further reading and I recommend uh, uh, checking out Southern Evangelical Seminary because you can dive way deeper into all these topics. Uh, so, so I'm going to be presenting a lot of evidence today, but it's 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 by far not. It's just really the tip of the iceberg. Uh, all the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. But here's here's the uh, modern trilemma argument in, uh, in its uh, in its logical form. This is a deductive argument. It's got uh, three premises and a conclusion. First premise is either the disciples were deceivers, they were mistaken, or they were telling the truth. Premise two, they were not deceivers. Premise three, they were not merely mistaken. Uh, four, therefore, the disciples were telling the truth. So it's, uh, as we talked about in the last episode, it's called the trilemma argument because usually the skeptic doesn't want, uh, doesn't really want to say any one of these, right? Uh, they don't want to say that the disciples were deceivers because the evidence suggests they weren't. They don't want to say they were mistaken because that's pretty hard 
That's pretty hard uh, conclusion to draw. But they also don't want to say that they're telling the truth because, and, and uh, you know, don't be, don't take me to be saying that just because someone doesn't believe in the resurrection, they're necessarily uh, trying to um, uh, suppress the truth or something like that. Uh, something that they think is true. You know, I'm not saying that everyone who says it's wrong believes it to be true in their heart. I'm just saying uh, it's that's why we call it a trilemma, because the the skeptic doesn't want to hold to any any one of these three. Um, You know, it's premise one says either the disciples were deceivers, they were mistaken or they were telling the truth. Uh, And they don't want to they don't want to say either one of those. So. yeah, like I said, let's let's defend this. Uh, let me discuss this argument and show you how it's defended. So, you know, it's a it's a uh, deductive argument, and it is valid. We don't need to talk about the uh, logic of it all that much. Premise one is just saying there's three options: either the disciples were deceivers, they were mistaken, or they were telling the truth. And you know, premise two and three say that they weren't deceivers and they weren't mistaken. So the conclusion says, okay, so the last thing we're left with is that they were telling the truth. Uh, it's a deductive argument, and those are the, the best kind of arguments to make in philosophy. You make them, That's the strongest type of argument you can make. So uh, if, if you can make it, you always try to make that type of argument. I, I mean, I will say that uh, when we are defending the premises, the truth of the premises, sometimes we have to rely on um, inductive or uh, inference to the best explanation argumentation. So it's not like it's all just a, a, a open and shut case, uh, logically speaking. But anyways, um, you, you'll see how we defend these. W- with premise one, it's saying that either the disciples were deceivers, they were mistaken, or telling the truth. In the last episode, I talked about I like this one because uh, I like I like this argument above the. Uh, Lord liar lunatic argument because um, some people might uh, not even think the Lord liar lunatic even works because they might think that Jesus was mythological. So um, this one just kind of gets around that and that we're talking about the disciples. We're not talking about Jesus. So we're not necessarily assuming that someone is going to believe that Jesus was a historical figure, right? Um, uh, the, the, talking about the disciples, what they believe to be true, um, just will prove that Jesus did exist. And obviously, since this is an argument for Jesus' resurrection, we will be proving that Jesus really did rise from the dead, or or at least showing that that's a reasonable conclusion and a highly probable conclusion. Um, But we're not assuming that, you know, it's Jesus' historicity isn't an assumption built into it. So, uh, and and I, I I personally haven't ever read anyone who's argued that the 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 apostles the Jesus disciples didn't exist. So it's not like we have to sit there and prove that the disciples existed. We just show that the disciples weren't deceivers; they weren't mistaken. So therefore, they were they were likely telling the truth. Okay, uh, so that's why I like that. Now with with, uh, with either or statements. Um, you know, you want to make sure that you don't have a false dilemma. In this case, we would want to make sure we don't have a false trilemma. You know, and what is a false dilemma? If you've ever, uh, if you're familiar with logical argumentation, uh, a false dilemma is whenever someone says you either have this choice or this choice. Um, but it's a false dilemma because there's a third option open to you that you might want to take. So you weren't really stuck in a dilemma because there was a third option. 
Here we want to make sure that uh, there's not some fourth option that, that someone could take to get out of the trilemma. And I honestly uh, can't think of one. I think this is pretty... Uh, a pretty tight argumentation here because what other um, what other option could there be you know either the disciples were lying they were or they were mistaken or they were telling the truth um, you know with with the mistaken part you know people have objected that maybe the disciples were hallucinating that would go in with the mistaken thing so I just can't really think of any other any other third or fourth option here you know we said with the uh, Lord liar lunatic argument uh a third option of Jesus being Lord, liar, lunatic. Uh, a, a fourth option, excuse me, is that some people might say, well, Jesus was mythical. Well, when you, if they say that, then they've gotten out of the Lord, liar, lunatic argument, but then you have to show why you don't think uh, Jesus was mythical. And a lot of times you're going to be doing that by pointing to the disciples as eyewitness, uh, test, eyewitnesses to the accounts. So, um, so here, you know, I don't think, like I said, no one's really going to say the disciples were mythical. Uh, and, and whenever you start talking about Jesus as being God, being a myth, uh, that's built into this argument. So I don't really think there's a fourth option. I think it's a good, tight case. We're saying in premise one, either disciples were deceivers, they were mistaken, or they were telling the truth. So that one's, I think, pretty easy to um, uh, to defend. What we're going to spend most of our time in premises two and three. They were not deceivers. They were not merely mistaken. Okay. Uh, and then four, you know, if you know anything about logical argumentation, if you, if you have a logical argument, uh, all you have to do is show that the premises are true. And if the premises are true, the conclusion necessarily follows. So most of our time is going to be spent um, t- defending premise two and premise three. Uh, really quickly, I got a little bit ahead of myself. I did want to mention a little background to this argument. Um, you might not realize this argument is a lot older. Um, you know, the uh, minimal facts approach is, is kind of something that uh, is, is pretty recent in the history of Christianity, something that Michael Icona and, and uh, Gary Habermas have been arguing for in the last, um, in, in the last few years. Uh, but this modern trilemma argument uh, goes at least farther back, uh, you know, a lot farther back than that. Uh, and I, some people would argue maybe it was even forgot just a little bit uh, in certain circles. To give a little background for this argument, I did want to mention, like I said, it, it goes back there. Um, uh, from what I've heard, this is how Christians have argued for the resurrection at least as far back as the 1800s, maybe even further. So... Um, this, this type of art, this, I mean, you know, not the, the exact words that I have in the premises and conclusion, but this type of argumentation is used in William Paley's 1794 work, Evidences of Christianity. And if you know about that book, uh, that was actually required reading at Cambridge University all the way up to the 1900s. So, um, everybody was studying something like this. Now, you might be asking yourself, why is it that these arguments for Jesus' resurrection are are relatively recent? You know, how come we don't see an argument for the historicity of Jesus' resurrection in Thomas Aquinas's works or or uh, or Augustine or somebody like that? Now, now some of these authors did talk about uh, the resurrection happening, so I did want to mention that. These types of arguments uh, haven't been, they're not as old as the the philosophical arguments for God's existence, for example. And the reason why has to do with what we talked about 
when we started talking about the possibility of miracles. You'll, you'll hear me talk about this in those lectures, the possibility of miracles and historical knowledge. Uh, if you remember from those lectures, I talked about how modern historiography originated with the Renaissance uh, that ended in the 1700s. So yeah, it might sound weird that arguments like this trilemma argument weren't being used earlier, but again, like I said in those earlier episodes, there wasn't as much widespread skepticism until the Renaissance uh, and modern historical methods were established. So before then, before the Renaissance, a lot of people, most people took the historical truth of the resurrection on the authority of the church. So it wasn't, uh, it, there wasn't this widespread skepticism and the methods of history that we know of them uh, today weren't even established. So really, um, everyone just assumed, yeah, uh, this was a historical event because that's what the church has been saying for the last hundreds and thousands of, thousands of years. So that, there, like I said, there wasn't as much skepticism. So um, after the Renaissance, this is where we start to see historical arguments for Jesus' resurrection because the methods had been established and because there was a lot more need because of the widespread skepticism. Okay, but yeah, this is uh, this. If you read a view of the evidences of Christianity, uh, like I said, that was required reading at Cambridge until up until the 1900s. So everyone was well versed on this, and and it's almost sad that this type of argumentation is almost kind of fallen out of the wayside, and not too many people are aware of it. Uh, there's also a, a few other apologists. Uh, in in history that made arguments similar to this. I don't have a slide for it, uh, but uh, other similar apologists using similar argumentation were Edmund Bennett. Uh, he lived from 1824 to 1898. He was the dean of the Boston University School of Law, and he wrote a book called The Four Gospels from a Lawyer's Standpoint. He used a similar argumentation to the modern trilemma argument. Uh, there's uh, John James Blunt, who lived from 1794 to 1855. He was an English Anglican priest, and he wrote a work called Undesigned Coincidences. So that's where a lot of some of the, the main portions of this argument will come from today. Uh, contemporary apologists, if, you, if you're watching this video, uh, you'll see my slides show the, the book covers. But uh, contemporary apologists using arguments like the modern trilemma argument are uh, Craig Blomberg, in his book, The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel. Uh, there's one I don't have shown. Uh, Peter J. Williams wrote a book called Can We Trust the Gospels? And uh, finally, another one that I've mentioned before is Lydia McGrew wrote a book called Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. So um, these are all, if you're interested in this type of argumentation, these are all sources that you can go to and get the you know, the really detailed um, defenses and discussions of it, okay? Uh, but like I said, premise one is pretty clear-cut. I think what we're mainly going to do in this lecture is defend premises uh, two and three. And if we can show that those are true, then the conclusion necessarily follows. And uh, all we'll have left to do is just survey objections and show why objections uh, emphasize why all the objections to the history of the resurrection are false. Okay, so uh, like I said, jumped ahead of myself a little bit. Here's a slide showing our defense of premise one. And um, my slide says a fourth option might be that the accounts are legendary. 
having accrued over the centuries, but we can address this under premise two, like I said. If, uh, if, if someone wants to say, no, this isn't a trilemma because I, don't, I think the accounts are legendary, well, that just falls under the, uh, the uh, disciples. I mean, it could kind of fall under them being deceivers or mistaken, uh, but like I said, um, this is, these are things that we're going to be answering while we're defending uh, the premise two and three. So uh, we don't have to worry about that for now. Now, um, with pre- so let's let's look at uh, premise two and how we would defend that. There's actually going to be a lot more ways to defend these. Like I said, we're just kind of showing you the tip of the iceberg. So in and, and I can't uh, if I talked about every single piece of evidence, uh, this would I maybe could make a whole series on that. Um, I just wanted to talk about these three main factors that I would bring up myself um, whenever I'm trying to show that the disciple Jesus' disciples were not deceivers. They were not lying and trying to make this stuff up, okay? And uh, three points I wanted to touch on are what's called the Jerusalem factor. The second point is embarrassing admissions in the Gospels. And the third is Paul was an enemy of the church, okay? Uh, if you are familiar with the minimal facts approach, you might you might recognize some of these major points. I think they are great points uh, that can be placed in both arguments. It's just that the trilemma argument goes about it a different way, right? And I'll emphasize that uh, difference from the minimal facts approach as we go along. Uh, but uh, yeah, so premise two says the disciples were not deceivers. Well, my first point that I like to talk about when talking about the disciples not lying is is what we call the Jerusalem factor. I got this point from uh, Habermas and Lycona. They, they specifically talk about it in that book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what is the Jerusalem factor? This is the point that we where we emphasize that Christianity began... Uh, you know, and, and especially in its first uh, hundred years or so, it was mainly in Jerusalem. Now, uh, if you and while while we talk about this under the they were not deceivers point, is that let's imagine that the disciples were wanting to create a new religion because maybe they wanted money or power, right? You know, why else would you make a religion up uh, if it if it's not true? Why else would you make up the religion? I, I'm I'm guessing it's because you want money or power or fame or something like that. Um, well, when we realize that Christianity got started in Jerusalem, this is actually a point that that points to uh, this is a concept that points to the truth of what the disciples were saying that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And the reason is because if you're going to make up a religion especially Christianity, the last place you're going to want to make it up and try to sell it is in Jerusalem. And why is that? That's because Jerusalem obviously was the home of the Jews. Um, Now, the Jewish Old Testament teaches that God is one, right? Now, we've covered some things, especially in Jesus' self-understanding in that lecture, that there are some places in the Old Testament where it's like, hmm, this seems kind of strange. Like, in uh, in the prophecy in Daniel, it looked like there was a human divine figure. But on the most part, um, uh, you know, Jews from from all the way going back to uh, Moses and Abraham, 
they they're they're very monotheistic, and uh, as we see in the uh, uh, gospel accounts, if you claim to be God, if a human being claimed to be God, that was seen as blasphemy, and it was punishable by stoning. Right, uh, so sto- stoning to death. So you, if you are just making up Christianity, the last place you want to make it up is in Jerusalem, the headquarters of uh, Judaism, where you can get stoned to death for claiming to be God. A second factor with Jerusalem is that it was under Roman control. And uh, obviously Christianity contradicts what the Roman polytheistic religions uh, had to say. You know, the Romans didn't really care all that much about uh, the people that they governed, you know, what they believed all that much, but they just wanted to keep the peace. Um, so, you know, history shows that uh, they just wanted to keep the peace. So because Christianity is, is causing so much trouble with Judaism, um, that, you know, that was obviously a problem for the Romans. Uh not to mention it, it's insulting to the Romans uh, with their polytheistic religion. Uh, but also later on, we see that Christianity started to grow so much around Rome that it became um, uh, it became a problem, and, and Christians started getting uh, persecuted. But you know, the Jerusalem factor, the, this this uh, the church getting started in this first hundred years or so, at least the first few decades, it was mainly in Jerusalem. Why would, if it was not true, why would they choose that? A, a third thing is that if the, uh, you know, so what we're saying is you definitely wouldn't want to start it in Jerusalem because you're going to get killed for doing so, right? And why start it in a place where you're going to get killed? Why not go start it somewhere else that would be a lot more friendly or receptive to it? They're starting it in the one place. I, I tell my students, it'd be like, let's say I wanted to start a new polytheistic religion. Would I, would, would I like, let's say that today, right now, um, in, in the 2000s, right, uh, in the 2020s, in this decade, if I wanted to start a new polytheistic religion, would I go to uh, Mecca? <laughs> you know, uh, would I go to some uh, uh, Muslim stronghold and, and proclaim to everybody that God, there's more than one God? Uh, no, that would be ridiculous, right? Because why? Because I'm probably going to get killed. And even if I don't get killed, no one's going to listen to a word I'm saying because they're so strongly um, uh, monotheistic there, right? So so it, it really doesn't make sense for uh, the disciples to make, if they're making this up, it doesn't make sense for them to do it in Jerusalem. And another thing is... Uh, Jerusalem is where all the events were supposed to have taken place. So why also, if they were making this up, um, it would be really tough to do it. Not only is it hostile, like I just pointed out, but also this is the one place where everybody could have confirmed if it was a lie. You know, they said it that, that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people. Well, if he didn't appear to hundreds of people, everyone would have been really skeptical of it because they would be like, well, you're saying he appeared to hundreds of people, but we don't, we can't find any of them. So we kind of don't believe it's true. They also claim that the tomb was empty. If it really wasn't empty, they could just go confirm that it wasn't empty and that he was still in his tomb. Like they, like they said, you know, like they said, he, w- he came out of it. So it, 
they're starting Christianity in one of the worst places they could have done because it's hostile with the, with the, the, the Jews and the Romans. And two, it's the place, the one place where everybody could confirm whether it's true or not. So this is where Christianity is getting started. Uh, and, and also, you know, history shows that uh, Christians were getting persecuted. So this is just a bad place to start Christianity, uh, the one place where you don't want to start it if you're making it up. But, you know, seeing that, this really to me is evidence that they weren't, they weren't deceiving. They were telling the truth because why would you do so otherwise, in, especially in Jerusalem? But, you know, in the last episode, I, I showed you some extra biblical sources outside of the New Testament documents, right? That there is evidence showing that, um, that this really did happen and Christians really were persecuted for it. Uh, if you remember, I, had, I showed you a source from Tacitus, who was a center and historian of the Roman Empire. Um, he lived from around A.D. 55 to 120. In his annals, he wrote... Uh, quote, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most ex exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first, source, the first source of evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Tacitus is telling us that Christianity got started in Judea and, uh, and that uh, you know, it, mentions, it mentions Jesus uh, suffering extreme penalty, which we know is uh, crucifixion. And uh, this is extra biblical evidence, evidence outside the Bible talking about the things that we're talking about here, that Christianity got started in Israel and Jerusalem and, um, and that Christians were, were persecuted for it. So, um, so, yeah, again, that Jerusalem factor just goes to show that unless they were just completely insane, which we don't think they were, how could you organize a church if you were just completely crazy? They seem to be telling the truth because if they were making this up, they would have chose a better, more convenient place where people couldn't confirm that they were lying and where people wouldn't kill them. <laughs> so, um, oh, and I also wanted to mention that Josephus quote that we used last time. If you remember in one of the previous lectures, I talked about Josephus. He was a first century Roman uh Jewish historian, and we we pointed out uh, how he talked about Jesus in a quote that we think is most likely modified by a Christian. You know, copy it as the as Josephus' original work got copied over the years. We think that maybe a Christian got his or her hands on it and uh, and maybe modified it a little bit because you can see it here. Here's 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 the quote as we showed in the last in one of the last lectures. Um, this is from Josephus. Uh, he, he wrote, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. He appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 uh, 10, other wonderful things concerning him. 
Now, that obviously seems to be biased uh, towards Christianity, and we don't think that a Roman Jewish historian who wasn't a Christian would write something like that, okay? But the good news is, for Christians anyways, is that um, we've found other versions of it. And uh, the, the quote, as I have listed on my slide here, actually comes from an Arabic uh, manuscript. So over the years, we think, you know, eventually someone translated Josephus into Arabic. And we don't think that a Christian got uh, their hands on this version of it. And this one seems to be very reasonably probably what Josephus actually wrote in the original version. Um, you know, I, I don't want to lie and say this isn't controversial, but this seems to me to be pretty reasonably what uh, what Josephus wrote. Even if all we had was the modified quote uh, that, that, you know, says that Jesus is the Christ, which very likely Josephus did not, would not say that. Um, even if this was the only quote, it's still evidence that Josephus did write something something about uh, Jesus. But this Arabic version, um, I think, is well. I'll read it and, and just and just show you how it seems to really be probably what Josephus actually wrote. Yeah, and this is the Arabic version. Uh, this translation is from uh, a scholar named Shlomo Pines, uh, who wrote uh, this, who translated this in 1971. Uh, so it, here's the here's the more reasonable quote from Josephus. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon their loyalty to him. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, they believed that he was the Messiah concerning whom the prophets had recounted wonders. Okay, so that's what we think most likely Josephus was saying. And he's just matter-of-factly telling us what we already knew to be true from the testimony of the early church and from the gospel accounts. But this is extra biblical outside of the New Testament documents evidence for Jesus' life and death and that his disciples believed that he rose from the dead three days after he was crucified. So this is so interesting. But um, also, I wanted to point out, when we're talking about them not being deceivers, again, uh, the Jerusalem factor is a big point here. Uh, but also, uh, you know, the next point I was going to talk about is embarrassing admissions that the uh, disciples had made. But also, don't forget one of those earmarks of historicity that we talked about earlier. Tacitus and Josephus are examples of enemy attestation. You know, the, the Jews, a lot of, well, I mean, obviously the, the Christian church gets started in Jerusalem mainly by uh, people who were originally um, Jews, right? Um, they, held, they held to Judaism. But those who believed in Jesus in, in the very beginning of the church were all Jews uh, who, were, who were kind of switching over to this newer understanding of Judaism called Christianity. Uh, but, but, a lot of, but a lot of other Jews didn't believe it. Uh, for various reasons. Josephus was one of those. So uh, he's not only a, a, a Jew who's a non-Christian Jew, but he's also a Roman. So, th But this is evidence from, uh, from an enemy of Christianity that uh, what the Christians were saying is true is true. So, I mean, you know, he's not saying that he's not saying that Jesus rose from the dead. He's saying that his disciples, his disciples believed that he rose from the dead. And that's enemy attestation to a point, right? Um, so that's another thing to be thinking about. 
Now, another major point. So that's the Jerusalem factor, and I love that point. I, I mean, I, I just can't imagine starting a, a religion that says the things it did in Jerusalem of all places. It was easily verif- uh, easily falsifiable if, if it were untrue, and two, uh, it was very hostile to the Christian message. Uh, but another point is embarrassing admissions. This is another one of the earmarks of historicity that we pointed out in our uh, uh, New Testament writers lecture. The gospel writers made so many embarrassing admissions, not only in relation to themselves, but also in relation to what Jesus was saying, that we think that these just doesn't seem to be them making things up. Because if you're making up your own religion for fame or money or power, you wouldn't and you wouldn't admit these things. You wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't be admission because supposedly it never happened, right? Uh, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't just make these things up. You either wouldn't make them up or you wouldn't admit it, right? Uh, and three major uh, concepts I wanted to touch on on this embarrassing admissions in the gospel's point is that the gospel writers were portrayed as confused cowards, at least before Jesus rose from the dead uh, in the stories. Jesus was often portrayed in a bad light, and the gospel writers said women were the first to see the empty tomb. Well, I'll show you uh, examples of all these and show you why uh, it doesn't seem like they would have made these things up. So uh, our first point, the gospel writers portrayed the disciples as confused cowards. Uh, and one example is Matthew 8, verses 24 through 25. It says, Suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was sleeping, talking about Jesus. So the disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. <laughs> uh, that, that's an example where, you know, and if you know that story, you see uh, Jesus calms the storm. Uh, but it's an example where if the disciples really did believe that Jesus was God or divine in some way, they would they should have known that he could have easily stopped the storm or saved them in some way, whether whether you stopped the storm or not. Uh, so, but they're they're scared. They think that they're all they're in the boat with Jesus, and they think they're all going to die. So that's really <laughs> it's really a embarrassing admission, right? In, in Matthew fourteen verse twenty six, it says, "When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost," they said, and cried out in fear. They see Jesus walking on the sea, and they don't believe that it, he has the power or God has uh, empowered him to do this. They their only explanation in their minds at this point is that he's a ghost. Maybe he died and. And it's his spirit appearing to them walking on the water. So that's a pretty embarrassing admission, right? <laughs> if you want to be the leader of the religion you just made up, you don't want to make up stories like this that make you look like you didn't understand what Jesus was saying or that you didn't believe that what he was saying, right? Uh, here's another example. Matthew 26, verses 55 through 56. It says, At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple complex and you didn't arrest me. But all this has happened so that the prophetic scriptures will be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. So here is an embarrassing admission where the uh, where Matthew is admitting that uh, him and all the other disciples abandoned Jesus after he was taken uh, taken captive by the Romans, 
you know, if I'm going to create a religion, I would probably want to paint myself in a lot better light than saying that I, you know, was someone who followed Jesus, loved Jesus, thought that he was the Messiah, and then he gets captured by the Romans, and immediately I just straight up abandon him. I don't try to stay at his side or, or fight for him or anything. I just run away. So that's a pretty embarrassing admission, I would say. Matthew 26, verses 74 through 75 says, Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. That's that's even worse than, than running away and abandoning Jesus. Here in Matthew 26, we see that Peter denied Jesus straight to his face, actually. Uh, I think if you read all of the uh, stories throughout the Gospels, in that uh, instance, uh, Jesus actually, uh, he, Jesus is there when he does it. So uh, the, they, the disciples admitted that Peter, uh, one of the most outspoken disciples uh, for Jesus, ad, admitted, or excuse me, proclaimed in Jesus' face that he didn't even know who Jesus was after he was captured. So pretty embarrassing things, right? Uh, and, and but there's there's more to it than that, right? The the gospels portray the disciples as confused cowards, right? Uh, we've looked at some of these before, uh, but but here's just a summary on one of my slides that that show all these uh, concepts. So one of the original twelve disciples betrayed Jesus. This is an this is another thing that I think is embarrassing. Mark fourteen verses thirty two through fifty talk about uh, how one of Jesus' disciples uh, betrayed him. This is a point that Doug Grotice uh, makes in in uh, his book, Christian Apologetics, around page 551. Uh, he talks about several of these, and that's, that's where I'm getting these points. But uh, yeah, just without going in and actually reading these the verses, um, just a handful of other uh, points about how the, the, the gospel writers were portrayed as confused cowards. Uh, so one of, you know, Judas, one of the original 12 disciples betrayed Jesus. You see that in Mark 14, verses 32 through 50 and in other gospels. Uh, Jesus' disciples failed to pray shortly before Jesus was arrested. Only John showed up to see Jesus on the cross after all of his disciples uh, left him and abandoned him. And many of the male disciples didn't even believe Jesus rose from the dead after he appeared to some of the women and and even even appeared to other uh, of the men. There were still uh, apostles like Thomas who didn't even believe them even after it had already happened. So again, these are just things that it doesn't seem like you would make up if you were trying to make yourself the leader, one of the major leaders of a new religion. Uh, a second point, like we said, is Jesus was often portrayed in a bad light. Uh, if you want to make up a new religion, probably you want to make it easy for people to leave their old religion and, and start uh, adhering to your religion, right? Well, this isn't the case with a lot of things that they said about Jesus. Um, and we talked about these in, in earlier uh, in another lecture as well, but I wanted to reemphasize these. And you see that 551 is, is a reference to Doug Grotice's uh, book, um, Christian Apologetics. Well, one point that he makes is that Jews who were executed were thought to be cursed. Uh, I've got a slide for this, and you can you can see it in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-one, verses twenty-two through twenty-three. 
they uh, that says, starting in verse 22, if anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed, and you hang his body on a tree, you are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but are to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And you, this is confirmed in Galatians 3, verse 13, which says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So if you're trying to just make up a new religion, uh, it doesn't seem very smart to uh, say that the person who is the very foundation of your religion has been cursed by God, right? <laughs> so that's, that's uh, something that puts Jesus in a bad light. Uh, other examples are, and I mentioned this in earlier lectures as well, Jesus' half-brothers did not believe he was the Messiah, uh, in John 7 and other places, we see that, uh, and this goes into our next point, that Jesus' family thought he was insane. In John 7, I think that's the passage where Jesus' brothers are uh, making fun of him and saying if he really is the Messiah, then he needs, needs to start doing all sorts of miracles. Uh, in other places, we see that, like Mark 3 verses 21 and 31 we see that jesus family thought he was crazy they were trying to go get him and say look you need to quit telling all these people these things that that you're not so um you know <laughs> again more embarrassing admissions that don't seem to be things that you would make up if you were creating a religion uh, out of nowhere now here's another point uh just i think this is the last of our embarrassing admissions portion uh, the gospel writer said women were the first to see the empty tomb. And you and at first you might think to yourself, well, I don't understand why that's a big deal. Well, it's a big deal because back in the first century, um, and, and I, I'll show you this uh, from, from, Jose, from Josephus, he writes about this. Back in the first century, uh, the testimony of women was not thought to be uh, reliable, especially in legal proceedings. Uh, women weren't allowed to testify. In Josephus, uh, in his uh, in his writings, we see that he says, uh, and this is a quote from Josephus, "But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the inability of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak truth either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment." So yeah, from what I understand, in the first century, a woman's testimony was about as good as a criminal or a servant's testimony. They weren't allowed to be admitted in court. Uh, they just weren't thought to be trustworthy. The disciples claimed that women were the first to see Jesus risen. And this is not something that they, if they were making this up in the first century, that would have not been a smart move. To, to base the first sightings of Jesus on the testimony of women, because like I just showed you, women's testimony was viewed as a bad thing, or, or, or not a good thing at least, uh, not trustworthy. So this seems to be another reason why we think that they were just telling the events how they happened. It's not convenient for them to portray Jesus like that. It's not convenient for them to admit the things that they did and said. It's not convenient for them that, that women were the first ones to see uh, Jesus, but they're just telling it like it happens. If you were making this up in the first century, you wouldn't be making these things up, is what we're saying. Uh, and then they were not deceivers. Uh, I just like to point out something that we've already talked about. Um, 
in the last one, especially whenever in the last lecture, especially when I was talking about the uh, minimal facts approach, just it's just so it's so um, important to emphasize uh, the the logical implications for Paul and and James, uh, the brother of Jesus. It's the logical implications of them um, converting to Christianity. And especially Paul, and I said this last time, but I'll say it again, you know, it's so significant that Paul did not believe in Christianity in the beginning, uh, but something happened so that he gave up his high station as a Pharisee to join the Christians who were being uh, persecuted, right? If Jesus really didn't appear to Paul, I think he would have he would have had to just been basically insane to give up his privileged position so he could get persecuted and ultimately martyred. Paul was a high-ranking uh, Jewish Pharisee. If he, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if Jesus didn't really appear to him, he would have had no reason to become a Christian whatsoever. And in fact, you know, we read uh, in the Gospels that he originally persecuted Christians. He would have no reason to turn into a Christian if he hadn't been appeared to by Jesus. And so what we're saying is, if you say that the disciples were lying, then this doesn't explain why people like James, who thought his brother was crazy, or people like Paul, who persecuted Christians. This doesn't explain why they would have turned into Christians. The only thing that explains that is if Jesus really did appear to, to James, and if he really did appear to uh, Paul. Those, those are the only things that make sense. And he wouldn't appear to these people if he was still dead in the tomb. So um, that's just another point to, to, uh, to back up the truth of premise two, that the disciples were not deceivers. They were telling the truth. Okay, so moving on. Um, and, and like I said, this is just the tip of the iceberg. If you've been listening to me in all my previous lectures, um, talking about the historicity of the, uh, excuse me, talking about the reliability of the New Testament documents, talking about the reliability of the writers, I've talked about even more points that you could use, but I'm just trying to present this and not take two or three hours. So uh, there's a lot more that could be said about premise two, but that's kind of a, a good overview of it for now. So let's move on to defend premise three. They were not merely mistaken. There's a few things that we that we do for this, okay? Uh, one, just really maybe an obvious point, but just something to point out. Because they, they could be mistaken in many ways, uh, you know, so like one major mistaken, uh, excuse me, one major objection that involves them being mistaken is like the wrong tomb theory. Maybe they thought Jesus' tomb was, uh, you know, on this one block or street or whatever, and but it was really somewhere else. So they thought his tomb was empty, but it, he was really somewhere. You know, that would be a mistaken thing. But um, if someone just thought that maybe... Uh, I don't know of many people that have would have ever done this, but if someone said, well, I think you were mistaken, maybe it was just someone who looked like Jesus. Well, this would be pretty hard. Probably why maybe no one's ever said this is because it would be pretty hard to mistake the identity of someone you'd already hung out with uh, for the past three and a half years, right? Uh, Jesus' ministry on earth began and, and, and occurred for over the course of about three and a half years. His disciples had been with him for a long time, right? They loved him. They thought he was the Messiah. They were looking forward to him ushering in the, the kingdom of God. So it would, it is just beyond uh, 
I mean, pretty just practically impossible that they could mistake someone else for Jesus, right? I mean, just imagine that uh, you, say, went on spring break and spent the week with somebody. Uh, after you come back from spring break, it's going to be hard for you to be like, oh, yeah, I think so-and-so was there when, when he or she really wasn't. Especially if you're talking about going on a vacation with your friends or family. How could you be mistaken about who was there and what they did? I personally uh, had some went on some spring break spring break trips as an undergraduate, you know, and it's and it's already it's sad how long it's been since I've been out of uh, college as an undergraduate. But I can still recount all the events that happened in those times, you know, and that was a, a like a decade ago at least. Uh, so, you know. It, it, it's really hard to say that the the disciples could have at least been maybe that they mistook someone else for Jesus, right? They said that uh, he he hung out he hung out he hung out with them for for like uh, forty days after he rose from the dead. So as important as these events are in history, as important as these events are in their lives, very uh, just I think pretty ridiculous if someone argued that they mistook Jesus for somebody else. Okay. Some of the more, um, maybe uh, some of the other objections that maybe carry more weight are, are I, some people arguing that, uh, maybe the disciples hallucinated, but this is just something that is, this also is easy to answer. And it's, it's just, you know, it's just another good point to make that they couldn't have had a group hallucination. I, th- I think I talked about this in one of the last lectures as well. There is no, there, I mean, just straight up, there is no such thing as group hallucinations. There's never been any evidence of such a thing, to my knowledge. And even if the disciples did have hallucinations, this would not explain why Paul and James decided to become church leaders. And it would also fail to explain how the church began in Jerusalem, even if what the disciples were saying wasn't true, right? Uh, Saying that they had group hallucinations, for one, is making something up that has never happened uh, to our knowledge. There's never been any such thing as as anybody um, ever having a group hallucination where, where many people saw the same thing that really wasn't there, you know, um, like I said, it just doesn't happen. Uh, and and we'll, I'll talk about that objection some more at the end, but just know up front that you can just say, well, that's never happened. So where's your evidence that this thing is possible? But again, um, you know, it's also doesn't explain the Jerusalem factor also doesn't explain, uh, Paul and James, but we'll talk about that again. Um, what I want to focus on when we're trying to defend premise three is, is, uh, is emphasizing that the evidence uh, suggests that the four Gospels are eyewitnesses accounts, okay? And that's where we bring in this concept of undesigned coincidences, which I mentioned in the last lecture, but didn't go into that much detail on. You know, something that we talked about when we were talking about the synoptic problem was the question of why are there four Gospels in the first place? And that's, this is a question, I know we've talked about it before, but this is a question I want us to, to ask right now. You know, let's forget about for a second and everything that we've talked about in the synoptic problem and just and sit here and ask ourselves these couple of questions. Why are there four Gospels? And can we tell by comparing two passages of Scripture with one uh, with another that both are authentic, 
credible historical records. That's what I want. That's the questions I want to ask right now, and that's what we're going to be going on. That's what we're uh, going to use this concept of undesigned coincidences to help us. Okay, because remember what we're saying is that sometimes it looks like the accounts maybe contradict each other, but um, we find that they don't actually ever truly contradict each other. It just looked like it on the surface, but also sometimes. Um, passages, parallel passages in the gospel accounts fill in details for each other. And we call this an undesigned coincidence because we don't think that, uh, that someone would, would be able to make this up. That's, where, that's why I'm asking this question to you right now. Why are there four gospels? A major point to make is that if, if all the disciples were just making all this up, right, it would make more sense for them to just write one story. You know, when you think about this first question, uh, it seems to like it would make more sense if the stories were completely made up that the disciples would have just created and wrote just one story about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, right? And if that happened, there would be no reason to distinguish between four Gospels because they would all be in a word-for-word agreement. Um, and that's the point we touched on last time. Uh, you know, if if all the disciples conspired together to create this story, all of their stories would be exactly the same. Uh, you know, you might be thinking, well, maybe they made mistakes, and but that that's why. But that's why this concept of undesigned coincidences is so powerful. Let me show you a handful of examples showing you what we're talking about. So, really quickly, I don't know if I don't think I defined this last time. I get this definition of undesigned coincidences from Lydia McGrew's work, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. She defines undesigned coincidences as a notable connection between two or more accounts or texts that doesn't seem to have been planned by the person or people giving the accounts. Despite their apparent independence, the items fit together like pieces of a puzzle. Okay? And... and um, like I said, this has been argued for by scholars before. Uh, Edmund Bennett in The Four Gospels from a Lawyer's Standpoint, pages 4 through 5, he says, Had all four accounts been exactly alike, the suspicion would have been irresistible that one was copied from the other, or that all were taken from one and the same original. But substantial uniformity with circumstantial variety is one of the surest tests of truth in all historical narratives. So what some people, and we, we talked about this before, what some people will look at as evidence that the Gospels contradict each other, we're turning that on its head and saying, no, this is evidence that these are eyewitness accounts. For one, well, I'll show you how these undesigned coincidences point them to be eyewitnesses. But for one, like we talked about last time, it seems like each Gospel is written differently and emphasizes different things because the gospel writers had different audiences. Matthew was speaking to a Jewish audience. Luke was speaking to a Gentile audience. Peter was speaking to Roman officials. They emphasized different things when they were talking about what historically happened. Uh, they're not changing the story. They're just emphasizing different things, right? Well, um, what really points to them being eyewitnesses and not being mistaken is that not only do their stories not contradict each other, but their stories also illuminate each other. And that's what undesigned coincidences are all about. Here's one example, okay? 
This is you'll find this when you compare Mark 8 verse 15 with Matthew uh, 16 verse 6. Mark 8 says, And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Okay, Matthew 16 says, Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So some people might go, Okay, look, here we've got them contradicting each other. Uh, so we've got a problem here. One of them saying that Jesus is telling them to watch out for the leaven of Herod. The other one is saying that Jesus is telling them to watch out for the leaven of the Sadducees. And that was in Mark and Matthew. But when we turn to Luke 9, verse 7, this shows why whenever uh, Jesus said the leaving of Herod or the leaving of the Sadducees, it was making the exact same point. So let's, let's look at Luke 9, verse 7. It says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So this passage tells us uh, that some people thought that Jesus was John who had been raised by from the dead. Now, look at this. Um, Herod is saying that he beheaded John, so it couldn't be him. He said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? Well, if you remember, or if you didn't know, um, the Sadducees denied an afterlife. And by Herod's words here, he's saying it couldn't possibly be John because I beheaded him. So uh, what, what this shows us in Luke 9, 7 is that Herod shared the same theology that the Sadducees did. So it, it actually isn't a contradiction, and it explains the, um, the, the slight difference in what Matthew and Mark said. Uh, the leaving of Herod is the same thing as the leaving of the Sadducees because they're, they're both uh, a shared theology in that they both deny the afterlife. Does that make sense? So, uh, you know, uh, this is just an example where you read a different account and it informs you as to why there was a difference in the, in the gospel in some other places in the Gospels. Here's another example. And, and this is what this is one of my favorites. My most favorite is the blindfolding example that we'll look at here in a second. But a lot of times, so that one was that one shows where uh, this last one with uh, the question of Herod or the Sadducees uh, in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, that shows how one uh, gospel can can explain why there's not a contradiction in others. But other types of examples are ones where you read a passage and it, and it leaves you with a question, and you're like, why did they say it that way? Uh, when, you read a diff, when you read a parallel account in another gospel, it gives you more information, than it, and it explains why it was kind of like a, an open question in the other one. And, and here's, here's what's going on. That's what's happening in this second example I'm showing you. Uh, so, in Matthew 26, verses 60 through 61, it includes, Many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. If all you had was Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, to go on, um, you might not understand. You might be thinking that Jesus literally said that... Uh, 
or excuse me, you might think that Jesus said that he was literally going to destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. And you'd be thinking that was a weird uh, statement. But when you read John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21, this shows, this gives you more insight into it and it helps explain uh, what otherwise would have been an odd looking passage. This in John 2, verse 18, it says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So John gives us the extra bit of information that Jesus wasn't talking about the literal temple, that it would be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. He was talking about his body as being the temple that was going to be destroyed and, and, and rebuilt in three days. Uh, and if you're familiar with the biblical theology, you know, um, Jesus was thought to be God's presence on earth. Uh, usually God's presence was in the temple, but when Jesus was uh, on earth, anyways, it's uh, there's some theology behind that. But, but viewing those two passages, it, one gives us insight into the other. Uh, the other one was assuming that, but it was not was not emphasizing that. And John explains it to us and illuminates it for us. Um, an, another example. Let's see how many examples am I going to show? I think it's uh, seven, and then and then we'll move on. The third example is uh, has to do with this is another example of a passage where you'd be thinking uh, that doesn't make all that much sense. Uh, but when you when you read a different gospel, it gives you more information. In John 18, verse 10, it says, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Well, if you're familiar, you know, uh, right before he was going to get captured, um, Peter cut someone's ear off. So... So his servants did seem to be fighting. So you're thinking, uh, what are you saying? Like your your servants were fighting. Uh, so why are you so why are you putting it like this? Well, when you go to Luke 22, it gives you more information, right? Uh, Luke explains that uh, after he'd cut his ear off, uh, after Jesus' disciple cut his ear off, Jesus said, "No more of this," and he touched the uh, he touched his ear and healed him. So uh, you can see that. Uh, Jesus rebuked them and said, don't fight right now. Um, but you wouldn't have known this if you just read John, so it would have been confusing. Uh, Luke explains John in this case, right? Uh, another example, example number four, the striking and taunting of Jesus that's one of my that's pretty much my favorite. Um, I mean they're all they're all amazing. Uh, it, it's just striking to me and and throughout all this, and I'm probably going to say this again here in a second. Throughout all this, the the major point is, uh, if these people, if the disciples made up these four gospels with all these coincidences, uh, seeming coincidences, but they made these up on purpose, along with making up the embarrassing admissions, along with making up the uh, the hard sayings of Jesus and and painting Jesus in a bad light. They had to have been geniuses to have to have made these coincidences like this because they never contradict each other. And in many cases, they inform each other. Uh, this And like I said, I pointed this out before. Matthew 26, verses 67 through 68, it says, Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. 
Who is it that struck you? Uh, you know, the Jesus is before the uh, Jewish officials, and one of them's slapping him in his face and saying, prophesy to us who hit you. And if all you had was Matthew 26, if all you had was the, the gospel of Matthew, you'd be like, why are they asking him who's slapping him in the face? Because he's obviously within an arm's reach of Jesus. Jesus would easily know who was slapping him in the face. He doesn't need to prophesy. He just needs to tell him who it is. Well, uh, Luke 22 gives us insight into this. Luke says in verse 64, uh, chapter 22, they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? So Luke explains Matthew and tells us that Jesus was blindfolded. That's why they were saying what they did, and Matthew uh, just didn't mention that. Um, another passage that, I don't know, this this isn't necessarily something that just strikes me when I've read through Matthew, but uh, Matthew 8, verses 14 through 16 says, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Some people have looked at this and thought, well, why did he wait? Why did they wait till evening to heal all these people? Um, you know, if he was already if he's already in town, you know, they, he always had crowds following him. So, so why did it, they wait till evening to bring him uh, people to heal, especially if he was already helping uh, Peter's mother-in-law? Uh, well, if you read Mark 1, this gives you insight into why it was specifically in the evening. Mark 1, uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 21, 29 through 32 say, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. That's verse 21. You fast forward to 29. It says, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So Jesus had been in town already, and he went into the synagogue to teach. That's why uh, it wasn't until evening uh, that all of this occurred, actually. So, uh, so it, again, it gives us more. Mark explains, um, Mark explains Matthew for us there. Uh, we understand why it happened in the evening. This is an interesting example. My sixth example having to do with the donkey for Palm Sunday. Uh, this, in this example, it's it's you you might not have questions if you just read one, but this is just a neat example where you ha when you piece together several uh, parallel passages in in um, all four gospels. Really, it's not until you piece all those together that you get the main major picture, right? So uh, in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 3, it says the donkey, uh, if you read those, it, it, I'm not going to read the passages, but if you read those, the donkey comes from Bethphage. It mentions that, but it doesn't mention uh, Bethany. In Mark 11, 1 through 4, and Luke 19, 28 through 33, it says the donkey came from Bethphage or Bethany, uh, but you're not sure. Jesus says, go into the village in front of you. In John 12, verses 12 through 14, they find a donkey. It doesn't mention where, but it records that they spent the previous night in Bethany. And, and this implies that the village in front is Bethphage. So, <laughs> you know, piecing all that together, Matthew said the donkey came from Bethphage. 
Mark, Mark 11, Luke 19, make it so it could have been Bethphage or Bethany. But John 12 shows that they spent the night in Beth, uh, they spent the previous night in Bethany. So in Jesus, in Mark 11 and Luke 19, when Jesus says, go into the village in front of you, uh, we, we realized that they were in Bethany at the time and the village in front of them is Bethphage. So, uh, just really interesting. It's just another time where it doesn't seem like they would, you know, if they're making this up, why, you know, it's, it's amazing how, uh, ingenious it would have been if it was all a lie, uh, how they each gospel account emphasized a different thing. And when you piece them all together, um, it gives you the bigger picture. Here's one where you might have had a question if you just read one account. In Mark 10, verse 32, it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Uh, if you're reading Mark 10, it doesn't explain why they're afraid. And you might have just be hanging with the question, well, why are they afraid? Well, if you read John, John, John 2 uh, verse 13 I, I won't read all of the all of these in in chapters of John in in John 2 5 7 8 chapter 10 and 11 it shows you that the last four visits that Jesus had made um, going up to Jerusalem ended with the Jews trying to kill Jesus so this makes sense when you read Mark 10 and everyone who's following Jesus are afraid. Of course they're afraid because they, they probably realize, and whether they're from Jerusalem or not, whether they're disciples or, or people that are from Jerusalem that, that you know were hanging out with them, or just from Jerusalem and, and heard the stories, they will realize that every time Jesus tried to come into town, they were trying to kill him. So, you know, if I know someone is going to come into my town and this is someone that everyone wants to kill, I'm, I usually, you know, so I don't get caught in the crossfire, I'm not going to want to be hanging around all that well. Um, I'm going to be scared that I'm going to get hurt too. So that, that you know, uh, John explains Mark here. We, we understand why they were afraid. So, uh, all of that is uh, defends premise three. Let me back up in my slides. Just uh, look at those really quickly. So just to just to recap, what we're saying is we don't think the mis- disciples were mistaken. It would be extremely uh, almost impossible for them to identify someone else as Jesus. Group hallucinations don't happen, and instead, uh, dis. In addition to all the stuff we said about the disciples, that, that there weren't deceivers and all the earmarks of historicity, in addition to that, these undesigned coincidences in the Gospels show that the, the um, disciples seem to be eyewitness account, uh, eyewitnesses to the events that they are giving testimony about in the Gospels, right? Uh, there's all these undesigned coincidences that, that seem to show that each one was telling the story from from his perspective. So they seem to be eyewitnesses and, and they couldn't be uh, uh, confused in what they saw, especially because their stories don't contradict each other and, in, and instead their stories end up confirming each other and giving uh, more information uh, to each other. Okay? So that's how we use undesigned coincidences to show that the dis- disciples were not deceivers. Uh, excuse me, we're not mistaken. So with with those two options out of the way, the disciples were not deceivers, they were not lying, and the disciples were not mistaken, we are left with the conclusion, therefore, the disciples were telling the truth. Uh, so really quickly, I wanted to try to finish this up 
by uh, going over these objections. We've we've covered some of these before. Yeah, I briefly mentioned these in the last lecture, uh, but I'm gonna and this this video's already this uh, episode's already running long, so I'm gonna try to keep this as short as I can and just briefly mention all these. But here I wanted to just mention all these objections to the resurrection and show why we you know how everything we've covered would show that these are there's some uh, fatal flaw with each one of them. Okay, so the first one is the I, the objection to the resurrection, saying that uh, Jesus or his divinity and or his resurrection from the dead is an embellishment, a, a legend of some kind. Either it's an embellishment over time, uh, or the Gospels themselves are non-historical, or uh, sometimes they point to resurrections in other religions. Okay, now... Um, like I said, we should we should already know how to answer these from everything we've covered. Embellishments over time. Uh, these are not possible because we have shown that the resurrection traditions are all traced to the original disciples as eyewitnesses, right? Uh, this also does not explain the Jerusalem factor and Paul's conversions. Non-historical genre. Uh, this would not explain the Jerusalem factor. This would not explain Paul's conversions. Fiction did exist back then, but this doesn't mean that everything that was written in the first century is fiction. Just because it has, um, just because it has supernatural things in it, like we've said, because miracles are possible, because we think God exists for various reasons, uh, we think that just because someone writes about uh, a supernatural thing doesn't mean they're making it up, uh, right? Uh, fiction did exist back then, but it's hard to understand why early Christians would go to their desks for a fictional story. Even if uh, the fictional story is close, this does not mean that the two are related, right? Um, like I said, uh, if, if the Gospels were written in a non-historical genre, if they were fictional, this wouldn't explain the Jerusalem factor. It wouldn't explain Paul and James' conversions. Um, there, some people have pointed out that there's resurrections in other religions, this is a, I could give you a whole lecture on this in itself. Um, there's, there's other uh, religions in the ancient world that have to do with people coming back from the dead. But just to let, just to let you know on the, on the surface, none of these parallel uh, what is taught in Christianity. Um, there's a, Osiris, if you are, know who that is, uh, is the only resurrection account that predates Christianity. Yeah, there's all these uh, mystery religions around the first. Well, actually, the mystery religions weren't really around in the first century. They are they're a lot later. The mystery religions that you hear about that talk about things that kind of parallel Christianity, a lot, most of those arose in the second, third, fourth centuries. So they weren't even around really. But there was a religion uh, with, uh, um, I think it's Egyptian myth mythology. Uh, Osiris uh, comes back from the dead. However. Uh, Osiris in the Egyptian mythology does not include a bodily resurrection, by the way. Osiris' body had been torn into 14 pieces, and he was brought back from the dead to become the ruler of the underworld. So that, so that, it's, that is, does not parallel Christianity in any way. Um, so it, it, it's, it's hard to say that that evolved into, into Jesus. But, but, but again, you know, uh, the Jerusalem factor, uh, the the empty tomb, uh, James and, and Paul's conversions. The, leg, the legend uh, objection doesn't answer those things. Uh, they, the, 
but j- just so you know, um, like I said, Osiris is the only is the only major account that exists before uh, Christianity, but it is not a true parallel to resurrection. So it's not like they would borrow that to turn it into Christianity. Um, all other accounts of resurrection have zero evidence to show that they predate Christianity. And like we said, this ignores the internal evidence for the eyewitness nature of the Gospels and also violates Paul's conversion and the Jerusalem factor. Fraud theory. Some people have argued that maybe the disciples stole the body and made everything up. Some people argue that maybe someone else stole the body. And uh, some people, you know, I think we might have mentioned this before, suicide bomber objection. So I'll talk about all three of these. Fraud one, uh, and this I get that uh, term from uh, Gary Habermas and Michael Icona's uh, evidence, uh, the case for the resurrection of Jesus. They call they call the disciples stole the body as fraud one theory, but uh, the disciples stealing the body this would not explain the disciples' transformation after they claimed to have seen Jesus. Right? Um, if Jesus really, if Jesus. If they stole his body, they knew that he died. Why would they all of a sudden become bold proclaimers of Jesus' resurrection and go to their martyrdoms, right? So that does not explain their transformation after they claim to have seen Jesus. And that does not explain Paul's conversion or the Jerusalem factor. And this objection is falsified by the internal evidence of undesigned coincidences. And, you know, this is actually a 2,000-year-old objection, right? In Matthew 28, uh, you see that... uh, the, the priests back then were telling people, well, just, and, you know, it, this does come from a, a, an apostle. It does come from the New Testament manuscripts. But they were arguing that, they, they were pointing out that the priests back then, the uh, the Jewish priests were, were trying to tell people, he didn't really raise from the dead, someone stole his body. But again, um, if that were true, then no one would have had a reason to become a Christian because they wouldn't want to be persecuted. They wouldn't want to to die for, for saying these things are true. And everything with fraud two, which is someone else stealing the body, is true for, for fraud one theory. Uh, assuming that the disciples stole the body doesn't explain the undesigned coincidences, doesn't explain why Paul would all of a sudden want to be a Christian and leave his high station as a as a high-ranking Pharisee, and it doesn't explain James, and it doesn't explain uh, uh, Christianity getting started in Judaism. Excuse me. And it doesn't explain Christianity getting started in Jerusalem. Uh, And, and, you know, a lot of this points to an objection I think I've mentioned before. Some people say, what is the difference between... what is the difference between a suicide bomber and the apostles? Both are going to their deaths saying something happened that they believe to be true. Well, if someone ever brings that up, the, re- the difference between a suicide bomber and an apostle of Jesus Christ is that a suicide bomber is just someone who's told that the things, you know, a suicide bomber is just told that he or she is going to paradise when they die. They don't know for certain uh, they're going to their death for something they believe to be true that they were told by someone else. A major difference between them and apostles, an apostle is someone who's going to his death saying that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You know, if they are making this up, why would they die for a lie? They have nothing to gain. If you're making up a religion, it's because you want to gain something. You want to gain fame, power, or money, or all three. But whenever you're proclaiming that lie is going to lead to your death, you have everything to lose that you're trying to gain in the first place. So it wouldn't make sense for you to do that. So um, 
So that's the difference. No one wants to die for a lie. No one who's who's uh, immoral enough to make things up to for gain is going to go to his or her death for a lie. So that doesn't make sense. And that's the big difference between a suicide bomber and uh, the apostles. You know, I, I, it just like I want to emphasize that, yes, people do believe crazy things a lot. Right. You know, even in Texas, here in Texas, uh, back in the 90s, I, I think, uh, we had David Koresh, right, who who told all these people all these things about himself, and they all believed it. But what's, you know, what's the difference between David Koresh and Jesus? Well, guess what? David Koresh is dead. He doesn't have any followers anymore. No one's following him anymore because he's dead, and he's never coming back. Jesus said all these things about himself, and then they all came true. And he was perse- he was uh, crucified in front of everybody, died, and and beyond a, a shadow of a doubt was dead, crucified. You know, um, there's no way he could have been alive. Uh, and then he appears to his followers after that. That's why there are Christians today. That's the difference between Jesus and David Koresh. David Koresh is dead, never coming back. Jesus came back, and that was enough to make his scared followers all of a sudden all go to their deaths. Right. Um, People do believe crazy things, but uh, not uh, these things usually aren't confirmed. Well, uh, Jesus uh, said he was coming back from the dead and then he did. So anyways, um, wrong tomb theory. Uh, This uh, I've mentioned this before. Wrong tomb theory is where people argue that maybe the disciples were mistaken about the uh, uh, location of the tomb. But, um, you know, the thing with this is that uh, Jesus was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, right? Uh, you see in John 19, um, Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus, uh, asked Pilate that he take Jesus' body, and Pilate gave him permission. Um, and then Nicodemus also came and bring, uh, brought a mixture of uh, myrrh and aloes. Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the aromatic spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. And then uh, they placed uh, Jesus' body in a garden, uh, and the tomb was in the garden. No one had been placed in it yet. They placed Jesus there because of Jewish preparation since the tomb was nearby. The thing is... Um, Joseph of Arimathea was the modern-day equivalent of a senator or a congressman. His tomb would not have been obscure, and everyone should have known where it was, not to mention John, the eyewitness of Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial, reported that he knew where it was, like I just mentioned in John, uh, from John 19. So, you know, it, it's like saying that people could be mistaken about uh, where the tomb of some uh, uh, modern-day senator or, or congressman was. Uh, no one's going it, it to, was, it was really nice, and it was a prominent figure. So no one's going to get the tomb wrong, especially, you know, with something this important. And again, wrong tomb theory would also be falsified by the, the uh, uh, if we're saying it's the wrong tomb, they we're saying they're mistaken. So this would also um, be falsified by the internal evidence for undesigned coincidences, Right. Uh, it would also wouldn't explain James conversion. It wouldn't explain Paul's conversion. So, again, um, doesn't make any sense. Apparent death theory. 
<laughs> this is the idea that maybe Jesus looked like he died, but either swooned his death, you know, pretended to die, or um, he just looked dead and then woke up later. Well, if you <laughs> if you have ever read accounts of what it's like to be whipped, scourged, and crucified, you will know that this theory uh, is pretty unbelievable. The thing is, uh, we we see, like what I said, with all the embarrassing admissions, the disciples said they didn't, they did either didn't understand or didn't believe Jesus uh, half the time. Now imagine that Jesus faked his death, or uh, or just passed out and then woke up later, and he looks, you know, he looks like someone who was scourged and crucified. And he's hobbling back to them half alive. Do you think they're all of a sudden going to proclaim that he is the Messiah? Um, that absolutely not. <laughs> uh, no one would follow Jesus if he showed back up, uh, which we don't even think is possible. There's actually a article about this in the It's an older article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA. If you ever just type in Google uh, Jesus crucifixion, J-A-M-A, uh, and you'll you'll probably find the article. Uh, there's no way you can survive uh, crucifixion back in those days, especially if you've just been scourged. And uh, there's no way the uh, someone who'd been through that, even if it was possible for them to survive crucifixion, there's no way that the disciples all of a sudden would have been like, oh yeah, you're, you're the Messiah. You totally were just risen from the dead. Uh, you know, he had wounds on his hands, but they don't describe him as looking like he uh, looked like he was had, you know, one foot in the grave. Uh, so apparent death theory, uh, for one, we don't think that would explain why the disciples went to their deaths proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. And two, this uh, if Jesus apparently died but looked mangled beyond all recognition, we don't think that his his brother James would have became a believer, and we don't think this would explain why uh, Paul uh, left his station because they'd be like, "Oh, you're just some guy who just got wrecked, and you're not who you said you were." So, uh, so again, this is a kind of a silly theory. Uh, psychological phenomena I've talked about before. Some people have argued that maybe the disciples hallucinated, maybe they wanted it to be true so much that they were deluded. Or maybe they had a vision. Well, hallucination theory. Um, like I said before, hallucinations are subjective and never shared between different people. And this would not explain the empty tomb and it would not explain Paul and James' conversion. Delusion theory. This would be falsified by the internal evidence of undesigned coincidences. It would not explain the Jerusalem factor. It would not explain Paul's conversion. Uh, Paul hated Christians, and he would have no reason to be delusional and, and to be so upset that Jesus died. Uh, he would be, be thankful for it. He thought that Jesus was a false prophet. So uh, Paul wouldn't want to be deluded into thinking that Christianity is true, right? So th those don't make sense. Vision theory. Uh, vision theory is different. This is where people say, well, maybe it really didn't happen or it was just a vision. Well, uh, this a lot of times isn't necessarily a new objection. So for example, if someone is saying that the visions are subjective, then that kind of runs back into the hallucination or delusion theory. Uh, but it, so then you just answer it in similar ways. But if they think that maybe the disciples did see things 
you know, if it's a subjective vision, then it's it seems like it would either be a hallucination or a delusion, right? If it was an objective vision, saying that objectively they were seeing Jesus, but maybe uh, he didn't see his body, then uh, this still doesn't necessarily get the objector out of the truth of the resurrection or the truth of Christianity. Uh, it just could raise questions about the nature of Jesus' resurrection body. Okay, so vision theory doesn't really do much to answer. Uh, it's not a very powerful objection. It doesn't do much to, uh, even if it were true, it wouldn't really falsify Christianity. It would either be false if it was hallucination or delusion theory, or it would still confirm uh, Christianity, but just maybe take into question the nature of Jesus' body. Um, and, and just a word really quickly, if you were to try to combine any one of these theories, just know that that would actually make things worse. You know, say you want to combine uh, the just like say you want to combine theories. Maybe you say that the disciples stole the body and wrong tomb theory or something like that. The disciples stole the body and they were delusional. The problem with these theories is that when you combine theories, the probabilities don't add up like simple addition. Does that make sense? The the problem if you combine two theories that are improbable, the improbability gets magnified and multiplied, right? So, for example, not that any of these theories I believe are even fifty percent, but for an example, if I combine two theories that had a probability of fifty percent, when you combine two theories with a probability of fifty percent, that gives your new theory a probability of twenty five percent. So even though you might think, even though it might seem intuitive that combining theories gives more explanatory power, the problem is that these theories are already have a probability that's very low. And when you when you put the two theories together, it doesn't add up the probability. It multiplies the improbability of them. So combining theories is a bad thing here and, and definitely doesn't work. Okay, so. um so that's that's uh, that's our our review and our defense of the trilemma argument for Jesus resurrection. So this is definitely one of our longer videos, one of our longer episodes, but I'm I'm glad you hung in there with me and I hope you enjoyed everything and I'm just so excited to have finally shared all this. And uh now, you know going forward we're uh, we're going to be talking about the problem of evil. We're going to be talking about inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. We're going to be talking about a handful of things. This really is the culmination of our three-step method. But I am going to be wrapping up other things in the next uh, eight or so episodes to give a few more considerations to tie up some loose ends. But yeah, that's uh, that's the uh, tri modern trilemma argument for Jesus' resurrection. So uh, hopefully you were thinking about these questions for reflection, and hopefully they got answered for you. If you remember, the first question for reflection was, can you think of objections that people might make against this trilemma argument? Two is, how would you answer these objections? Three is, do you think a group of liars could be ingenious enough to create four gospel accounts that were up to 30 years apart from each other that contained all these undesigned coincidences. And uh, I'm going to leave you with our Albert uh, Muller quote. Albert Muller said, Inerrancy is nothing less than the affirmation that the Bible, as the Word of God written, is totally true and totally trustworthy. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. This is the Bible's own testimony about itself, 
and it is the historic faith of the Christian church. We'll be talking about how you can use everything we just used in our three-step method in the next lecture to show how we do think this leads to the non-circular conclusion that the Bible is inerrant and inspired. So I hope to see you in that, that next lecture. Uh, really quickly before I close it out, I wanted to re-emphasize that um, if you want to dig deeper into these topics, if you want to learn more about these, uh, I highly recommend Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College. In fact, I took an entire class whenever I was uh, getting my master degree. I took an entire graduate, three-hour graduate course solely on the resurrection of Jesus. And I read so many books about Jesus' resurrection that were so thick. And, and they're really, what we covered today is just the tip of the iceberg for evidence for Jesus' resurrection. So if you want to dive into these, I highly recommend SES. Uh, they're great. They've got in-person classes, obviously, but they also, a lot, most of their, most if not all of their programs can be done um, online. So they've got anything as far as, uh, as small as a certificate to a uh, um, bachelor's degree, master degree, master divinity, PhD, Doctor of Ministry, all those, and you can usually uh, get a major in apologetics, but obviously other things like, um, like, like there's a philosophy degree, uh, philosophy major in the graduate uh, degree, a master's program, uh, and other things. Uh, you can major in biblical languages, you know, the whole thing. But uh, but SES is great. They do emphasize apologetics, and I highly recommend it. I hope you'll check that out. If you go to ses.edu, is their website. Um, also, I highly recommend Kingdom Preparatory Academy. Uh, this is the classical Christian school here in Lubbock, Texas, where I first taught uh, a course based off of the uh, the material I created for that class is the inspiration and uh, a basis a lot of times for what I'm presenting in these lectures. So anyways, uh, Kingdom Preparatory Academy is great. Their website is kingdomprep.org. Uh, it's a classical Christian school here in Lubbock, Texas. They uh, goes all the way down to pre-K, all the way through 12th grade. It's a classical school. They teach students how to think, not what to think. It's also set up as a university model, so students go to class usually on Monday, uh, Wednesday, and Friday, and they're at home on Tuesday and Thursday. Um, but it's a great school. I highly recommend it. Again, kingdomprep.org if you are interested in a classical Christian alternative uh, in the Lubbock area. Um, I, I'm excited to talk about inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture in the next episode. I hope to see you there, and I hope you have a great day.